0: It's August 23rd, 2010, and this is The Candid Frame. Welcome to The Candid Frame. I have received some recent questions about accessing older episodes of the show. For whatever reason, the iTunes Music Store has limited access to only the last six episodes. I believe that this is an issue with the feed, which I'm trying to correct. This may involve completely switching the feed. If this happens, I will post a message on the blog, as well as make an announcement through Twitter or Facebook. In the the meantime, you can access all the shows by clicking on the archive link on the right-hand side of the blog at thecandidframe.com. Almost every episode is available via manual download there. I'm also considering making a switch in terms of where the blog is hosted, which may be part of the problem I'm having, but I'll let you know if that changes as well. So stay in the loop and I encourage you to periodically visit the blog over the next two weeks or simply follow me on Twitter or on Facebook for regular updates. Today's guest is a photographer that no doubt many of you already know. David Hobby aka The Strobist is a photographer that has helped popularize the use of small portable speed lights for use in creative and inventive lighting techniques. Embraced both by amateurs and professionals, his popular blog and his approach to lighting has inspired hundreds of thousands of photographers to think of flash as more than just a tool you use when there isn't enough light. As you'll hear in a moment, David is not about tech for tech's sake, but it's very much like many of the great guests on this show, a photographer rooted in the belief that a photographer has to have something to say with his images technique alone is a hollow thing but the passion and the vision of the photographer are at the heart of everything so sit back and enjoy our conversation with david hobby david hobby welcome to the candid frame hey thanks for having me let's start with your career as a photojournalist, because though most people know you from from your blog, the Strobist, you had uh, a lengthy career as a photojournalist, and and my the question that I want to want to start with is how did your work as a, as a photojournalist working for a daily newspaper help influence and develop the way that you see and use light?
1: Oh my gosh, I mean, huge, huge influence. I mean, number one you never know where you're going to be headed when you walk into a paper and you get your assignments in the morning. And typically at that level we're doing two or three a day. I think at the sun we were, um, we were around 2.3, 2.4 assignments a day back when I was there. And that may have changed now because they've got such a different number of people in the staff. But, But the short answer is you never knew what you were going to do when you were heading out. So, um, for me in particular, it meant that I needed to be able to do a lot of my lighting with a fairly small kit and to be versatile with that. Um, and and the, the fun and before it, Patuxent Publishing, which was a very photo conscious chain of weekly papers at the time, it, it absolutely was an influence. I mean, it was they were the influence on everything that I did.
0: It's interesting that the last couple of years people have been really big on the capabilities of these small speed lights but I remember when this capability was first introduced that there was a lot of judgment made because of the comparison to strobe that these speed lights are not as powerful. They don't offer as fast a recycling time. They, they, they don't provide as much control, but you and a lot of other photographers have demonstrated that despite those limitations that you can do an amazing uh, amount with it. Tell us about you know some of the challenges that you had as a photojournalist, maybe on uh, on an assignment where you felt like having those particular tools were a bigger asset than having, you know, a full studio pack, for example.
1: Well, you know, to go back to your first point, I think that that you know I really don't see any difference between, for instance, monoblocks and speedlights. And in fact, I think of my speedlights as little mini monoblocks that you can just dial the power up and down in, and they have a built-in slave and they got a sync jack. If you know, if they're decent speedlights. And I approach them exactly the same way. The only difference between them, and there is no difference in quality of light or, or such. The only difference is quantitative, which is to say you can do anything you can do with big lights with the small lights, but your your sphere of operations just becomes smaller. So I can easily overpower sun with a couple of SB 800s, but I've got to be in very close and not going through modifiers to do that. So really, what the trade-off is for me is you get a you get a limitation that you have to endure with speed lights, but in exchange for that you get extreme portability. Uh, and my typical my typical kit would be I'd have two cameras because if you've got one camera and a brakes you're not a photographer anymore. Um, so I have camera over right shoulder and left shoulder, one with a long zoom, one with a telephoto zoom, and they both kind of come into the portrait range. Like for instance a twenty four to seventy on one body and a seventy to two hundred on the other. So even if you lost a camera and a lens, you could still do portraits and then go wider from that, or portraits and then go longer from that. And then in my, uh, over my shoulders I had a, a, um, a light stand, a compact light stand on a strap and with, a, with a swivel head adapter on the top, maybe in an umbrella, um, bungeed around it. And then so that over each shoulder, and then in my, um, my waist pack, I'd have a couple of flashes and a couple of pocket wizards. And that's a very mobile setup, and that was what I tended to walk into every assignment that I would have some measure of control over, and uh, and that gave me the ability to, to be mo- to be completely mobile. I mean, I can walk five miles with that, and and that's kind of cool because if you think about it, you're carrying around a three-light studio because you're always going to have your ambient light, and that's your first light that you're working with, uh, and then your two other lights that you can add to, so. The fact that you could literally walk five miles and have a three-light studio with you—that that to me really clicked, and it made so much more sense than using than using the big lights because they would just stay in my trunk, you know. And, and I would walk in and say, "Well, I can get the light. I can come back and get the lights later if I need them." And then you never do because you're in a hurry or you're lazy or or whatever. So it's kind of a dance dance with the one you're with, kind of a um, a line of thought, and and that just it, it tended to work out really well for me.
0: And I think that sensibility helps you to be aware of the light that's in the scene even before you put a lot of flash because you, you, if you don't have these big powerful flashes where you can overwhelm the existing light, you're sort of forced, forced to have to consider and sort of balance out what you're doing with flash, with with the ambient light with, that already exists naturally in the scene.
1: Oh, completely. Completely. And I think it's a good ethic that it forces you to take the natural light into account because that's what's real and that's what's there. And uh, I certainly evolved um, when I was a young photojournalist when when I would when I would light something that's light with a capital L it really would be. I would bring be bring out the big lights and, and you're overpowering the daylight and you're starting from black and building that up or, or whatever and, and you're completely fabricating light at that point. So it's a completely altered reality that doesn't even take the real reality into account. And with speed lights, you really have to. Speed lights and ambient—it's a relationship that is forced to exist. And I think, I think in the beginning, you're more likely to try to overpower the ambient and just kind of do your own thing with the lights. But as you progress with it, you realize that that dance between ambience and speed lights is a really interesting place. That place where they mix, and and this looks really cool, except I just want to, I want to modify it in this way or or this ambient looks really neat, but I just want to bring it under control and then I'll fix what I've dropped down too far with the flashes or just lots of different ways to approach it. But yeah, it's it's, it's definitely a dance and it, to me, that's the interesting place. It's the margins that's really interesting.
0: You know, since you've had the strobes, you've seen a lot of people who have taken the techniques that you've taught and create their own images. You have that on assignment, um, um, basically uh, sort of a a teaching exercise that you provide on your blog and you get to see how so many people have adopted what you've taught and what you've used in ways that you probably haven't even imagined. How has that been for you to actually see what people have done with what you shared and made it their own and make it their own?
1: But that's easily been the most gratifying part of running the site. Um, well, I don't know. I've really enjoyed the travel and getting to meet people uh, in, in different parts of the world too. But, but to see what someone who has a lot of creativity can do, when you give them some basic knowledge and basic tools, it really can just be mind-blowing. Um, certainly from my perspective, I have always been limited on the creative side. I'm, I, I've got an engineering background. Um, I, I can look at a scene and figure out pretty much how it was lit almost without without breaking a sweat. So the hard thing for me is coming up with, coming up with the, the idea and the concept for a shoot. But so many people that I talk with that that strength and weakness is reversed. So they may be creative out the wazoo, or just have this really cool eye, or a natural wide angle feel. And then to give them the opportunity to learn how to do some very simple things with light, and to watch where they take that, it it's it's frankly it's very intimidating to look and see what the what the aggregation of the readership throws back at the site because no one photographer could ever be that good. And, and it's intimidating to write for the readership sometimes as a result of that.
0: Yeah. Cause it brings up that whole idea of striking that balance between, um, uh, technical savvy and vision.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you've got to have both. Frankly, if you only have one, I'd rather have the vision and I can deal with, with, uh, technical deficiencies later, or some pictures just look good when they're a little wanged out and, funky things and, you know, get a whole glupe going or something. But if you don't have a moment and some kind of a vision, then all the technical stuff in the world is not going to make a picture out of nothing.
0: Yeah. And I think that's probably one of the challenges for anybody who wants to be creative is the sort of onus that they have, that they have to be technically up to a certain level before they can allow themselves to be creative. And I think a lot of people can end up limiting themselves as a result because they feel like, well, I don't know enough or I need to know this or I have to have access to this or that in order to finally be creative and I think especially when we're going on your site and on the Flickr pool you get to see examples of people who may not have all the experience or all the you know all the equipment or all the gear but all of a sudden you see the kind of images that they're making and you and you just marvel at it.
1: Well, you know the, the really strange thing is, is I will go into the pool and and see pictures that I particularly like, and sometimes I will leave notes to photographers, and and I'll ask them like, you know, are you a professional? And and I'll get back, well, you know, actually I'm in ninth grade, <laughs> and that's, which is which is just wonderful, and 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 completely pisses you off as a 45 year old photographer at the exact same time. So, so it I, I just part of me is just like really thrilled to see these young people coming in with their technical ability so quickly. And the other part of me is just really pissed off that I didn't have access to this kind of information when I was 18 and just trying to soak stuff up, too.
0: Yeah, because it's a whole different time now where people can learn photography off of websites like yours, off of Flickr, off of forums, or all of a sudden there's so much information. There's like you just, you know, you just drop a dime and all of a sudden there's just a wealth of, of info to have.
1: Yep.
0: Um, yep. And it doesn't even take a dime anymore. Yeah, that's very <laughs> true. When you first started uh, the blog, it was, it was not even meant to be as big as, as it was. Tell us about how it started and how it's transformed over the last several years.
1: Okay, so I guess around February of 2006, I knew that I wanted to do something to repay photographers that had given me so much help and inspiration and information young in my career, Um, in particular, uh, guys like uh, John Ashley, who was a photographer I worked with at the Leesburg Commercial when he was a staffer and I was a stringer, And, um, and, and certainly people that were far removed from me, like Dean Collins was a big influence, and uh, Greg Heisler was a big influence earlier in my career, uh, Joe McNally actually, and I wanted to turn around and point back at the what I thought would be an audience of, of, of like juniors and seniors in college who were photo majors, and maybe some young professionals who had just gotten out, and my goal was to show them the difference between what they were learning in school and what they needed to know in the real world with regard to lighting and small flash in particular. So I went and I asked my um, my photo my director of photography at the time, Dudley Brooks, who was an AME graphic uh AME, AME graphics at the Baltimore Sun, hey, do you mind if I use some of my assignments and write about it on a blog? I kinda wanna teach younger photographers and leave a trail of breadcrumbs for them and, and he was like, Oh no, that's that's absolutely cool. And it's funny, in retrospect, like six months later he said that he could look at my image archive in the server and see exactly the day that I started doing that because that made me focus more on my own work and and it altered certainly the way that I was shooting because I don't think you really get a full understanding of something until you try to teach it to someone else. It forces you to articulate those things that you normally just internalize. And and it just, it went so quickly. It just flipped me out. I mean, it was one month, I'd, I'd have like 1,000 views, and the next month I'd have like two or 3,000 views, and it just was growing geometrically. And that was because the amateurs found the site so quickly and it was the information was just as real and accessible for an enthusiast as it would be for someone who had dedicated their life to taking pictures It's just two sides of the same point and it was just like off to the races at that point i had no clue
0: that was coming at, at all when was the moment you realized that it had gotten bigger than you'd ever expected to be what was what your reaction and and your family's reaction to what was happening
1: well, it's funny. I would experience that moment over and over. It would it would hit something, and I thought, well, man, I never expected this to happen. And and then the next month, it would do that, you know, plus 50%. So it was it was a little creepy, but at the same time, I started thinking, you know, I'd spent the last three four years of my career so worried that there were so many talented amateurs with cameras, and it was forcing down the value of photography in a lot of ways. And and uh, the new information flows were were hurting the newspaper, obviously. And and when I backed up and looked at it and looked at that that pool of just many hundreds of thousands of really talented, knowledge-thirsty amateurs, and and realized, well, you know, that could be a market too. I started thinking about it completely differently. And 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 it was at that point I think that I started to think, you know, this this could actually become like an income stream or a business that could. Allow me to, to do the type of photography that I want to do, as opposed to working for someone else all the time and coming in and getting my three assignments a day. So it, it was scary and liberating that that process of growth at the same time. I think
0: I, I often talk to people about making such transitions. Uh, for a large part, it's about people who have, you know, normal everyday jobs who want to make the leap into being professional photographers either fine art photographers or or whatever that is and that gap that transition can always be very sort of anxiety filled and and it can and and oftentimes my question to them is what allows you to make the decision to make the change and I know that you took a sabbatical for a while and during the time you it helped you sort of make the choice. But tell me about the decision to move away from being a full-time staff photographer to dedicating all your time to the blog. And what were some of sort of the considerations and fears that you had, you know, as you were coming to make that choice?
1: Well, I knew I couldn't keep doing both because I basically spent a year of not having any quality time with my family. Um, The newspaper, any Metro daily newspaper job, whether you're a reporter or a photographer or an editor or a layout artist or anything. It's definitely more of a religion than a job, which is to say that it demands a lot more of your focus 24 hours a day than a normal job does. And it certainly takes more than 40 hours a week. And the blog was growing so much that it was taking more than 40 hours a week. And, you know, a week only has, what, 178 hours in it or something. So it it got to be very stressful. And I think the fact that both of the halves of my life, not counting family and relationships, obviously, or ever getting to go see a movie, uh, were taking so much time forced the decision on me. Um, and, and you asked about what, what was the, the main variable, what was the sticking point? Mm-hmm. Oddly, to be completely honest, it would be health care. Because at the sun, I had access to good health care. Um, it was expensive, just like health care is for everyone but but we had access to it uh, as, as, a, as an employee for a large company. and it was that sabbatical, that that pressure valve of a sabbatical because we were a guild shop, and we had you, know, you could after a certain number of years, you could take a year off or up to a year off, blah blah blah. And that was what allowed me to convince my wife to say, look, we can I can try this for a year and we can keep access to health care so. If it doesn 't work, we will never lose our health care and I can come back and, and I can shoot you know two point three assignments a day at the sun for the rest of my life um, in the end, the blog wasn 't the risky venture in fact, it was keeping my job at the sun that would have been the risky venture because not a year later, I would have lost my job on five minutes' notice with half of the staff when when what would have been the third round of layoffs uh, since I had been a tire for the paper came through so yeah. You really never know—not only that, whether you're going to get a curveball, but—and this, you know—in this sense, I, I was having curveballs coming from the pitcher and maybe a guy three rows back in the stands at the same time that I didn't even know was pitching. So, um, it's it, life's crazy; yeah. it just is.
0: You talk about you know the strobus being a full-time job. Do you find yourself working harder than you did than you were at the newspaper, or is it just different?
1: Um, yeah, you know, boy, I, I, that's a tough question because I do feel like I put in more hours. Uh, as a I'm a one man band, and any person that works solely for themselves will tell you that you're your toughest boss. There's no question about that, but on the other hand, the newspaper is a very demanding boss, and it will take as many hours as you can throw at it and and more if you got them so i I think it is different. Uh, I think the pressures are different. Um, with the newspaper, you know you always have your projects, but for the most part, you go out and you shoot your two or three assignments a day. And you wrap them, and you file, and you're done, and that stress is kind of gone until tomorrow morning at 8.30, and it's going to pop right back up again. But with something like this, you're chief cook, and bottle washer, and advertising, and editor, and publisher, and complaint department, and writer, and photographer, and long-term planner, and janitor, and, you know, whatever. And so, so in that sense, I don't ever really feel like I'm off, and that is set aside completely from the idea that I still want to maintain an existence as a photographer and and that has been something I've been focusing a lot more on lately and developing my second career as a photographer. So, yeah, it's it's like being in a relationship. You're never really not in a relationship if you're <laughs> in one. You, know? you don't get like, well, if you do start taking time off, you're going to get in trouble pretty quickly and it's probably the same thing here.
0: You would encounter a lot of challenges in terms of the images you would make as a result of the assignments that were given to you by your editor but now that you're you know your own man your own boss how do those how do those challenges come about now and how you know how much do you have to push yourself to make sure that you're not only creating opportunities for yourself to go out and shoot but to do things that aren't simply you know reproducing the wheel over and over again that you're you're challenging yourself in in ways that that you commonly experienced when you were on the newspaper?
1: Well, let's see. So for the first year, I kind of ignored that problem. I just kind of put it away and just conveniently pretended it didn't, it didn't exist. And then for, you know, the second year in these last four years, I really started thinking about it and worrying about it. And it's one of those be careful what you wish for things because you know, you're at a paper, and you spend 20 years bitching and moaning about the quality of the assignments. Man, this is this ridiculous. We should be doing this. And, and why, you know, even little things like, why are they sending me to shoot this east-facing building at 5 o'clock in the afternoon when I'm looking right into the sun? This should be, you should look on a Google map, and you should be there at 8 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning or whatever. And as photographers, we naturally are we're just like born complainers, I think. And, and then all of a sudden, someone says, okay, fine, you do it for the rest of your life. And it was so scary to really confront that for the first time that I spent a good two years just wandering around in the woods and thinking, well, you know, what the hell am I going to do with the, with the second half of my professional life as a photographer? And, and it wasn't until I backed everything out and started getting empirical about it, and when I finally realized that I need to think, okay, what is it that I want my pictures to accomplish? Uh, what kind of a body of work do I want to make what do what do I want to have been known for twenty years from now you know or or whenever when they write my obituary or or, or whatever if 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 anyone's going to know me for something, what is it going to be for and that was what started to unlock the key for me to 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 sort of backwards engineer from there what I wanted to do with the rest of my life and I've spent the last year thinking long and hard about that and and I'm at a point now where I'm starting to do some very interesting long-term projects, and, uh, and, and and more important, I felt like I've developed an ecosystem where those projects can have a reason for existing. It's a real chicken-and-egg thing. You have to invent the whole cycle. You can't just invent the thing that you want to do, but it's got to exist in relationships with the other things that you're doing and, and obviously in and with the site. And, and, and I, I finally, for the first time since 2006, I feel like I'm getting to that point now to the point where I'm very excited about it and, and things are starting to happen pretty quickly actually.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to see that the challenge of creating those opportunities for yourself exists whether or not you identify yourself as a full time professional photographer or whether you're a guy working in an office somewhere who desires it to be. We're we're both facing the same, you know, the same demands of of time and opportunity.
1: Well and and in a sense I think I share more in common with the with the person that sits at a desk all day and then is is a passionate photographer in the evenings and the weekends than I do with my former life as a full-time photojournalist, which is not to say that my commitment to photography is any less, but I have to balance the demands of what is a very demanding full-time job here running the site. Just just with the idea that you're getting three to 500,000 unique readers in a month, if just one, okay, think of it, if just one percentage of them are are inquisitive enough to 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 send in images and, and notes and stuff upstream. That's a lot of upstream communications, and if just a tenth of one percent of them are complete certifiable whack jobs, you know, <laughs> 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 yeah, you sorry, it's it's a numbers game, right? So and and. It, not to say not to say that a tenth of one percent are, but you do get the occasional uh, very persistent person coming up, and and I respect that. I've been that person before, but but you really have to create and segment the the writing part and the long-term planning part from the photography part, and and they have to be symbiotic, or you're just going to be spinning your wheels and pulling against each side of your life. I think.
0: You've 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 taught workshops, and you, you have an instructional DVD that, that that's out there that help people sort of learn these techniques and apply them to to their own work. But what has what are some of the things that have really benefited you from from teaching, particularly not not so much just the content that you've provided on the Strobus, but those opportunities that you've had to actually meet people in person and work with them in the flash. What what have those opportunities provided you in terms of what you've learned in photography and how it may have changed the way you approach your own technique.
1: Well, certainly the the opportunities that have come for me because of the teaching that I've done, especially in different parts of the world, um, one of the best opportunities that came to me was uh, a man named Bob Lee wrote to me and he said, I'm an engineer at Google and we invite people to talk here and, and would you be interested in coming and giving a talk at Google? And I wrote back, well, you know, is tomorrow morning okay? Are you guys busy tomorrow morning? Because I can be there tomorrow morning and tomorrow morning will be just fine with me. And, and as it happens, the, that opportunity to meet lots of Googlers, as they call themselves, um, certainly some of the most interesting people I've ever met in my life. And that was fairly young in the blogs. In the blogs, um, path has helped tremendously. But but there and again, I've been I've visited all four underground experiments at the Large Hadron Collider in CERN near Geneva. Uh, I've been to the Middle East multiple times. Just just doing really amazing opportunities that frankly I don't think I even would have gotten continuing to work at the Baltimore Sun so I I I don't think of teaching so much as a vocation as as a gate to open to other opportunities a lot and that absolutely has been the case and it has taught me to make my own opportunities closer to home and that has been an invaluable skill that I really didn't understand as a newspaper photographer that I've, I've gained a lot more understanding about over the last couple of years.
0: Can you speak more about that?
1: Well, uh, I have come, and this is kind of weird because it starts to get into that whole um, mindset of what is a professional photographer and what is an amateur and, and what, is, um, what is predatory models towards photographers, and there's certainly a lot of them out there. But I have come to think of my photography as a currency. And in the same way that you can get paid for photography, you can pay and gain access to things with photography. And and there are going to be some people who I'm sure are listening to this right now, and that vein is going to start throbbing in their forehead. And I totally get that because I've been on both sides of the coin. But right now, where my concentration is is, uh, for instance, I want to I want to create a a Walker Evans type documentary package from the next 20 years in my immediate area a very hyper local thing what was Howard County Maryland like from 2010 to 2030 something that will be a really neat way to bind communities together here but also very valuable for for people 100 years from now to go back and look and and if you take that ethic and you apply it to to examining things the same way you did as a newspaper photographer. But it's all you, and there are no sections to define you, and there are no deadlines, and there are no, this picture's got to run in black and white because it's on the inside, blah, blah, blah. Um, as an example, um, um, I went and shot a picture uh, for a local project that I'm working on of of Main Street, Ellicott City, Maryland, which is a gorgeous uh, circa 1800 town. And and there's this big mill down at the end of the road, and I was shooting a picture, and I and I know I want to be... I, I want to photograph inside that mill. It's, it's the Wilkins Rogers Mill. They make flour and all kinds of cool stuff in there. And It's been a continuously operational mill uh, through one owner or another and through several buildings back to the early 1800s. So I shot the picture of Ellicott City, and this is kind of a, the weird um, serendipity that I, that I try to go for when I'm doing my stuff. So I shot the picture of Ellicott City, and, and that I see as a, as a stepping stone to getting inside that mill. Because now you can write to the manager of the mill and say, hey, you know, I'm working on this project, and I can point you to this picture on the web and other things. And I was there, and I saw your mill in the background, and I thought, well, I really want to include this in this project. And he saw the pictures of Ellicott City, and he got very excited. And, oh, yeah, that's great. We'd love to have you come in and scout, and then you can take a look around. And, and I'm literally just talking to this guy today. And he said, oh, and by the way, we can get you up on top of the silo, which is nine stories high. And that just gives you a stunning view looking back at that old historic town. And as far as I'm, I know, no one has ever made a real quality photograph of, of Ellicott City from that vantage point. And I absolutely can't wait to see it, and I can't wait to have that in my back pocket for the next time we get a snow at mixed light when the lights are coming, and the, and the snow will get toned. To all those things that will be normally darkened in the shadows, and and that kind of hopscotching around your community and your chosen area of coverage, that 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 serendipity type approach is just a really exciting thing to me. And I really want to spend my next 20 years bopping back and forth, not being completely different from what I was doing as a young newspaper photographer in this area, but with no restrictions. And the only basis is to make a a long-term project of the best quality that I can make it. And that to me is more exciting and more gratifying than anything I've ever done as a photographer.
0: Some of the best photography has been done by photographers who were documenting their own neighborhoods and communities. You had like Helen Lovett in, in her neighborhoods in New York, Eric Callahan, I think it was, in, in Chicago. And you get to see people who didn't go very far, you know, beyond their own doorstep in order to make some classic images. They didn't have to travel halfway around the world like some National Geographic photographers have in order to make memorable, beautiful, and, and impactful photographs.
1: You know, that's exactly the way I'm thinking about it, too. And... and I was the community guy. Um, I, I, I came out through Patuxent Publishing and we covered uh, a collection of communities around Baltimore, Maryland. And then I went to the Baltimore Sun and I specifically wanted to remain and be that community guy, the Howard County guy. And um, and. After 20 years of that, I started thinking, man, wouldn't it be great? I'd love to go to Iceland and shoot the geothermal stuff, and I'd love to go to this country and do this. I'd love to go to this country and do this. And and I had the the opportunity to do some of that, and it was very exciting and very gratifying, but also very, very piecemeal and very – it didn't feel cohesive to me. And after a few years of doing that, really wonderful stuff, meeting great people, making some interesting pictures, I really started – embracing the idea of turning around and pointing back inwards geographically and doing the thing that I had done for 20 years without any of the restrictions that had been applied to me for 20 years. Um, And those restrictions could be time of day, length of project, whether it runs in color, black and white, how many pictures run, um, how long do I have to do this, uh, anything. In in fact, the newspapers I worked for didn't have a lot of budget, but I'm at the point now where if I need to spend – if a picture is important to me – and I need to spend $1,000 out of pocket to make that picture happen, not only am I willing to do that, but with the economic models that I've been working on, I'm confident that that picture will return that money several times over in the long run. So so developing that business ecosystem model is, is, is just as critical as finding your compass point, because one really can't work without the other. You've gotta be sustainable, and you've gotta have the vision of what you wanna do long term, or it's not gonna happen.
0: Well, the strobe is, you know the blog has created an audience of professional photographers and and, and enthusiasts but as you go out there with this second career as a photographer what role is that playing in terms of you being able to access or communicate with clients who are actually paying for your images is the strobist in the community you created as a result of that helping you in any respect or or no
1: well, certainly it's helping financially because the blog it definitely is producing um, like an income at this point. So I think the most important thing for me to think about is whatever I do as a photographer has to also feed the blog because what I'm going to do with the blog is going to feed my photography. And creating that that circle of, of you know, I don't want to say circle of life because that starts to get to Elton John and Lion King and stuff, but, but that... That ecosystem, for the lack of a better word, is very, very important for photographers. Uh, and, and even if you take Strobist out of what I'm doing, you would still have to create a sustainable ecosystem from what you're doing as a photographer here. And for me, um, you know, back um, back in the mid 1980s, when I was stringing for the Leesburg Commercial in Leesburg, Florida, if you know, if you go to cover a fire you know these guys because you've been to cover other fires and it wasn't a big town and one of the best things that you can do as a photographer is to save that second to the last print before you turn in that black and white that perfect black and white print to the paper you save those prints in a box and then the next time you're by the fire station you drop them by you drop them by, you know a selection of a dozen pictures or something and the, the professional photographer will say oh no no you're giving away the prints for free you're degrading the whole the whole process you can't do that but the person who is centered on creating a sustainable ecosystem will say, you know, those prints are going to help me develop that relationship with the fire department. And two months later, when there's a big four-long fire and they've got the ropes way out there and they're keeping everyone back, you know, that guy that you just gave those pictures to a couple months ago, the good a chance is any, he's going to look at you and, you know, tell you to come here and here, slip this jacket on. If you go around here, you're going to get a lot better picture from the back. And that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that would happen to me as a young community photographer. And I want to build that same that same intertwined sort of relationship with the community with this project that I'm working on. So you better believe that if I go and shoot a restaurant review in this little dive ethnic place with awesome food that charges almost no money, one of the things that they're going to get from me a week later is a thank you and a big 16 by 20 print. And it'll have my name and the name of the website on the bottom of it. And there's probably a 90% chance that a month from now, that 16 by 20 print is going to be up there on the wall and it's going to be framed. And every day, dozens of people are going to find about out about what I'm doing and where my website is just by going by that and looking at it. And, and those are the, the types of routes that I'm trying to put out down and laterally into the community and... And I really firmly believe that, that thinking of yourself as a member of a community and a photographer and not getting too, like, well, I'm the artiste and I'm, I'm shooting you and I'm in total control about it gives you opportunities that you would not get
0: otherwise. You you remind me of a conversation I had early in this week where I was talking to a photographer who uh, was really big into into film. And we talked about the idea that at one, at one point, because you were, you were shooting with film, the print had to be part of that final process. So the final experience of the photograph wasn't complete until you had the print. And right. now with digital, it doesn't have to end there. You can stop at the screen. And for, for for many people, that's where it stops. But I'm wondering for you whether the print is still part of your process as, as a photographer or is most of what you're doing now still you know, dedicated to what's happening on that screen?
1: Well, yes and no. It kind of depends on who I'm shooting for and what I'm shooting for. Uh, For instance, with the local documentary stuff that I'm working on, prints are going to be a part of that just from day one because those are going to go out as the, you know, I'm coming in and photographing you and your place of work or you and your really interesting thing. You are giving up your time to help that picture happen. It's a collaborative process. And you're also giving me a measure of trust and, And you're creating opportunities for me, so the first thing that I want to do is to show you that I appreciate that. And the best way that I can do that these days is to take that to take that 12 meg file and just send it right over the uh, the web to Costco, which makes surprisingly good um, permanent inkjet pictures for I think they're 6.99 for a 16 by 20 and 10 bucks for a 20 by 30 you literally can get the 16 by 20 print for about what it costs to buy the nice thank you card at Borders. So as a photographer you're really leveraging the value of those few dollars to make a statement that's kinda of cool and, and, and bringing that person into the end result of the process. But thinking down the line, it's also a good ethic to be creating those pictures and toning them to make good prints because uh, think about this as a business model. So. So I'm out there doing two or three of these pictures a week, and two years from now, it's going to be very hard for anyone to match my organized, considered, curated collection of photography from Howard County. So at that point, the photos themselves start to become their own business model. Because if you uh, if you're anyone in the county that wants to, to do any kind of decor or you're a business moving in and you need you need ten local prints that have a really cool stunning look to them, well I'm well, i one-stop shopping and we can do that right over the phone and I literally can have the stuff delivered to you in a couple of hours, or if you need pictures for your website or or whatever, so. On these individual assignments, I'm not thinking of them as commercial assignments, but in the aggregate, they start to build a body of work that has significant commercial value in this area and creates significant barriers to competition in this area and also put me on, on a level that that might not be matched by other freelance photographers who are only showing what other people are paying them to shoot. So, so I really believe that, that by spending some time thinking about the system in advance, you can start to create the same advantages – for you, as as are the disadvantages that are created for people who don't think about those processes and the interrelationships and the ecosystem before. And, and and that's probably the biggest change that's come across me in the last three or four years.
0: One of the things I greatly appreciate about your site is that it's it's not just a how-to site. I think a lot of sites are dedicated to how do you do this and how do you do that. And I know that that's that's you know one of the bigger questions that people have when they see another photographer's work. They're wondering how they did it. But what I really appreciate what you do is that you put the why in there. Why you end up doing it. And that it's an, it's an informed choice to put the light here, to use this light here, or to work with hard light rather than, than softening it. Um, how difficult is it though to be able to allow a student who's teaching from me to get that concept? Because I think it's it's so hard to just get fixated on the how and not really get into the why. Can you is it possible to teach someone to start thinking along those lines?
1: I I think the why is way more important than the how, uh, and 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 strictly from a self preservation point of view, if it was only about the how, I certainly would have run out of things to write about six months into it because this is not rocket science. It's it's a fairly constrained collection of physical laws that we work under, and The how, I can hit you with a long day of hard fire hose instruction, and you can walk away with 90% of the how at the end of a long day, and it's just whether or not you're going to remember it. But the why is really a never-ending discussion. Many more variables in the why, and and, and informing what informs where you place that light. Uh, Greg Heisler has a wonderful uh, saying, and his lighting style is what he considers to be the appropriate response to a given subject and a different set of constraints at a given moment with a given set of equipment in a, in a given location. So it's that response that is really interesting and getting there is way more than just the technicals of lighting. It's, it's a conversation. And that conversation is what I try to echo on the site because I think that for photographers who are interested in lighting, that conversation really never ends, um, which is way more appealing to me <laughs> as, as, as a long-term blogger, obviously, uh, then is the well here are the seven rules. Okay, thank you. Go forth and make pictures. Bye. See ya. <laughs> thank you. This this blog has been sponsored by Budweiser, uh, let's see, it cannot be reproduced in any form without the written consent of Major League Baseball, blah blah blah, goodbye. Um, so you, you really have to create a conversation that is it, it I want to be a La Panagille for lighting photographers and that being a reference to the bar in the early nineteen hundreds where all the painters used to hang out in Paris. A place to to trade ideas and to get inspired.
0: Well, the last question I always ask is: I ask a photographer to re- recommend another photographer who uh, they believe our listeners uh, can should explore and discover. Um, and it can be anyone who you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So, who would that person be, and why?
1: Well, the first person I would have recommended is uh, Dan Winters, but you've already talked to him, and and I thought it was a great interview. Obviously, anytime. Dan Winters is going to be talking. I'm going to be listening. Um, not knowing everyone that you've hit, um, I would send you, point you to two other people who I think are particularly interesting over the long term, and and one particularly recently, uh, Gregory Heisler, big big compass point of mine. Um, and have you guys have you guys talked yet? No, not yet. Oh, I I would I would absolutely love to hear this conversation with him. Um, he's been there, done that kind of guy. Just wonderful, fresh. Vision, wonderful sense of humor, um, lives his life in a bow tie, which has got to count for something. <laughs> uh, and and the other the other photographer is a is a fairly young photographer who was like me a newspaper photographer, oh, six, seven years ago for the Austin American Statesman, and uh, it is Peter Yang, and he is uh, he now is just doing really killer editorial and um, and advertising stuff, people oriented, and just a a really amazing arc to the big leagues from shooting for a, uh, a modest newspaper 10 years ago or so. And, and I could look at his work all day long. And, in fact, Greg Heisler, Dan Winters, and Peter Yang all have fairly significant portfolios that reside on my iPhone because anytime that I want to get in- inspiration from them, um, I, can, I can look at that and think, oh, okay, that's, he did that. That's a really neat approach. How would I think about doing this? Um, how did he get around this block? Whatever and that's something by the way i recommend to photographers that have an iphone yeah of course you get your stuff on there but you should have as many photographers that you admire as much of their stuff on there as possible i
0: think oh that's an awesome tip well thank you david so much for making the time for us today it was exciting to have finally had the chance to talk to you and uh, thank you so much
1: oh dude thanks thanks for having me i appreciate it
0: thank you for your continued support of the show If you have any comments or suggestions, please leave a message for me at thecandidframe at gmail.com or post a message on the blog at thecandidframe.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, Facebook, or on Flickr. Links to each can be found on the blog. And if this or any past episodes of the show have helped encourage your walk as a photographer, please consider supporting the program with a donation, which can be made via PayPal via a link also located on the blog. Till next time, this is Ibarian X Pirello, and this is The Candid Frame. Check out this show and more great photography podcasts at PhotocastNetwork.com. PhotocastNetwork.com